This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 9th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. The House passed financial services reform bill, if you listen to the White House and bill drafters, ends so-called too big to fail. But it doesn't, says Mark Calabria, director of financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. He says the proposed reforms transfer more power over resolving troubled institutions to administrators, the executive branch, and away from bankruptcy courts. For the purposes of explaining what is in the uh, House-passed financial reform bill, what is the difference between bankruptcy and receivership? The essential difference is that receivership is a bankruptcy-like process that's run by an administrative agency. Uh, In the case of banks, it's run by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Uh, Quite often at the state level, for instance, state insurance commissioners are run a receivership process. So, A, it's run not by the courts, but run by an executive branch agency. And B, it often has far more discretion in terms of rewriting contracts, in terms of changing priority of claims, which is, you know, where do you stand in line in terms of getting paid off? Uh, And also whether similarly situated claimants, you know, are treated the same. President Obama has shown no uh, reluctance uh, thus far to engage in that type of rearrangement of the people's place in line when it comes to collecting uh, on bonds, collecting on all to- yeah, types of corporate we, assets. We haven't seen any of that. Um, that. That's a very good point. And what we saw, for instance, in the auto uh, bailouts, and this was done before you went into a bankruptcy court, uh, because where the UAW uh, employees were placed in front of the Indiana pension fund holders, you could not have done that within a bankruptcy context without agreement. You can do that in a receivership context. So the mechanism that's in the Dodd-Frank bill would allow the FDIC in these cases to decide that, you know, this entity, pension funds, and in the case of the GM, you know, could be put at the back of the line even if they were at the front of the line. So we're looking at bondholders who, assuming this bill becomes law, are looking at the bill and looking at their bonds, and the contract that they have with that bond may be a little less secure uh, after this process goes through. That's very much that's very much the case. It's, it is worth noting that that's already the existing law in terms of what's applied to banks. Now it doesn't matter as much in banks because you know the number one creditors to a bank are the depositors. So you know the depositors generally get treated the same. You know obviously uninsured depositors sometimes get treated really different from insured depositors. But if you are a creditor. You lend to one of these large institutions, you know where where you contract at your place in line might not be the place in line that you have, you know when everything falls apart, and some of that's going to be a factor of because you've got that discretion. We've set up a situation where people have an incentive to lobby for their place in line to be moved up in in the line, if you will, and I think that's a very troubling process. You know. For instance, it's not as much as I mentioned in the case of a bank because the creditors are few in number. I mean, they're few in class, rather. Uh, whereas, you know, a large institution like an AIG fails, you're going to see a lot of lobbying, a lot of jockeying for, you know, I want to make sure that my claims are paid for, you know, and nobody else's claims. The only restriction, the only restriction in the bill is that everybody gets what they would get in a Chapter 7. Now, a Chapter 7 is a liquidation, and most Chapter 7s, you get about nothing. So there's very little constraint on the bill or on the process right now.
what's wrong with bankruptcy as a, as a reform for the serious problems that we've had in, uh, in financial markets, especially housing in the last three years, what's wrong with bankruptcy here? Why, why reform it in this particular way? Well, the thinking, at least on the part of the drafters of the bill, was that a bankruptcy process does not allow you to reflect broader public policy concerns. Um, for instance, the bankruptcy process is very explicit. The bankruptcy process works on behalf of protecting the creditors, and it works on behalf of following essentially the rules, the contracts, you know, both in terms of debt and in terms of who gets paid when. But you know, this doesn't look at any broader public policy questions. Would be the you know the answer that Mr. Dodd, Mr. Frank would give you, and so that if you have a situation where you can come in and you could try to protect the greater economy. Because you might want to make different choices. That would be the argument of the authors. But one man's public policy objective is another man's politics. And this allows you to have that discretion to achieve and pursue political ends instead of broader public policy ends or instead of at the expense of uh, creditors and other parties to the transactions. Treating uh, corporations uh, that maybe are out of favor with the public differently then you might treat somebody else. You very much might decide that, uh, or, you know, corporations and creditors. I mean, for instance, as we saw in the auto bailouts, the uh, UAW was treated in a better way than the pension funds were treated, even though they had contracted for different spots in, in the chain of priority. So it does allow you to move some people and in, in, in play some political favorites in the process, uh, which will ultimately raise you know, the cost of credit by creating uncertainty in the process. If this becomes law in the final analysis, how do various market participants' expectations uh, change? What, what behaviors are, are they likely to engage in or not engage in when it comes to making these kinds of investments? Well, one, it depends on the you know, particular set of creditors. I mean, we can start with that we all assume that depositors, insured depositors, will get paid off first regardless. Uh, and I think that that's a, a, a correct assumption. So to some extent, some of these institutions will shift toward rather than borrowing money in the debt markets, they will f raise more money via deposits because that will always be an assured uh, source of funds. Now, a trade-off with that becomes you get less market discipline from depositors than you get from other creditors. So to some extent, you'll see reduction in market discipline across institutions. You'll also see some instant, some creditors, you know, less reluctant to lend in those creditors who kind of know that they are perennially out of favor with the political system, such as hedge funds. You know, hedge funds, private equity funds might be more, you know, hesitant to lend to institutions that look like, particularly when an institution looks like it's in trouble. You know, you might lend to a bigger institution when the times are good because you figure the capacity there is there to repay. Um, you might not lend when you think that this institution is, looks like it's going in trouble and it's going down because you might figure you're less likely to get repaid. So in a sense, you'll probably make it easier to lend to too big to fail institutions when the economy is good. But when the institutions are failing, uh, creditors will be less likely to put their money in because they'll be more worried about how the process will work out, which is exactly the amount of time. You want, people, you want people to put more money in. Would that kind of skittishness on the part of potential uh, loaners of funds provide its own kind of discipline for institutions that know, well, we can't let ourselves get to a certain point where we look like we're not going to succeed and therefore would not uh, have the confidence of potential lenders? One would hope. 
Well, but, but you know, I, I am ultimately the bill does sort of expand the safety net for too big to fail institutions. Uh, despite all the rhetoric, you know, we've minimized, you know, lowered the probability that the taxpayer would put money in, but there's some probability that the rest of the industry would put money in. So even if creditors are bailed out at the expense of the rest of the financial industry, that still creates that moral hazard and risk taking. So I'm very skeptical about whatever uh, constraints on risk-taking you would see in the bill. I think you'll actually see greater risk-taking on the high end uh, rather than, you know, when I mean on the high end, on the, on, for larger institutions. So among too big to fail institutions, I think it's much more likely you'll see greater risk-taking, a lot less discipline on the mark creditors. Select creditors will be less likely to invest. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I don't think this is going to reduce the chance of bailouts or reduce the chance of financial crises. Mark Calabria is Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more on the financial sector reforms at Cato.org.